At the end of the year 2020, which we just completed, here at Never the Same, we decided to move some offices. People were shifting and Jeff took an office in the back of the building. And in that move, he had found a piece of paper that he had filled out at a seminar 10 years ago. And on that piece of paper was a look back at the year 2000, but also a prediction for the year 2020 and what youth ministry would look like in that year. Today in this episode, we are going to look and listen and talk about his prediction and maybe the prediction for the next 10 years in youth ministry. I'm Jeff Eggert. I'm Jason Brewer. And this is The Thought Factory. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, cultivating students through biblical discipleship and spiritual disciplines using theology, community, and technology. Learn more at neverthesame.org. Hey, it's good to be here on this episode, Jason. I guess we're going to talk about my piece of paper. Yeah, you found one piece of paper in all of the stashes of pieces of paper in your office as you moved. And uh, yeah, we are going to talk about it because you came out into the office and was like, hey, look at this crazy thing that we found. Yeah. yeah. Or was, crazy thing that, was, that, was that you found. I didn't find thing. it. I didn't help you move at all. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. I can't wait to talk about it because we're going to. We're going to take a little journey into history a little bit. And for some of you listening that are maybe younger in um, age and in maybe youth ministry experience, we're going to help you get a feel of kind of how we got to where we are now in 2020. We're going to go back 20 years, really. 20 years. And uh, and then we're going to go ahead 10 years. And then I'm even going to take us 30 years ahead in, in this discussion. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. I guess I got to have to schedule more time for this. <laughs> That's kind of great. <laughs> And uh, so we'll do that. Um, if you haven't gone back, I just want to encourage you. Our first episode of season 10, which we're in, we talked about politics and what's going on. We released it on Inauguration Day. Jason, you and I had a really very in-depth and interesting discussion about the connection with politics and ministry and student ministry in the next generation. I would not let the timestamp on that episode uh, deter you from listening. It's a long one. It's a long one, but we we really just thought let's keep it together uh, for one long episode. But yeah, it was our reaction a little bit to the Capitol riot and what's going on politically with the inauguration happening. But also, what does that look like for our response as youth ministers, those who are working with students? And yeah, it's a it's a longer episode, but I believe it's worth listening to. So if you have not checked that episode out. By all means, I'm not stopping you from doing that. I think I think the thing that if you haven't heard it yet, that uh, would be interesting to anyone leading is how do we as ministry leaders lead during this time with everything going on? How do we navigate personally, professionally, um, you know, socially, all those things? Really talking about what's happening, but very specifically, what are some things that we can do to really be the most effective? people to reach the next generation. We ask a lot of questions in that that episode to ask yourself in your own leadership, but the main question that we ask is, is your politics ruining your witness to students? Have you allowed certain things about politics cause your witness to be diminished because of, of not necessarily your stance, but just is it something that's more important than your faith? 
And our next episode, what we're going to do today is look back quickly and then look ahead. And then we're going to talk about some specific things in our next episode on what I would call the roadmap ahead for youth ministry. So we're talking about between 2021 now and 2030. What are some things that we need to be specifically doing? That's what we're going to get into. So it's kind of a companion episode, our next one to this one. So today we're going to look uh, at the landscape of where we've come from in youth ministry. We're going to look ahead. I'm going to make some specific predictions in this episode. The next one we're going to look about, what's the roadmap ahead for youth ministry? And we're going to archive this episode so when we come back in 10 years and we're trying to figure out how to play this episode on a device that yeah. we don't even, we can't even imagine right now, we'll be able to say, man, look at that. You predicted this. We'll be listening to it in our flying cars. Yep, in implanted headphones that's right yeah yeah so i can't wait to to get into this so yeah do that as always we want to ask you if you would this would really help us out subscribe to this podcast which kind of bumps us up um in people's search feeds as well as we have a resource for them jason we always have a resource that resource is called the trend report adolescence in the church trend report we just shortened that name down to trend report just for clarity uh but that is a resource for you if you have not already gotten that free gift from our website, neverthesame.org slash trend report. Go there, get your free report because this will give you an insight into the lives of students in, in the last year or two and what they're thinking, what they're believing, and maybe it could help you in some way in how you lead your team and, and the students that you are working with. And for today's episode, like we have already mentioned, we are taking a look at this piece of paper that Jeff found a couple of months ago, uh, but it was at the end of the year 2020 when, when we've gone through the craziness. And I think the awestruck of this piece of paper was hearing some of the predictions that you had 10 years ago for this year and going, I can see that. Yeah, that's, that's happening. But we're going to look at that in this episode, but we're going to start out by looking at your, your look back 10 years prior to 2010 to the year 2000 in the year 2000. I was wondering if that might show up. Does anybody know what that is? If you know, then, then, you know, then, you know, if not, oh, well, yeah, it, it was in 2010. I totally forgot about this, Jason. I was yeah, moving my office, and I found this piece of paper, and like maybe a lot of you in youth ministry that maybe have the privilege of doing it professionally, I have all kind of crazy stuff in my office, like weird pictures. memories, pictures, just all kind of stuff. And um, Wasn't there a blueprint of some Star Wars ship? Yeah, I have a blueprint of the, uh, one of the original prints of the blueprint of the original Cantina. Yes. From the 1977 movies, yeah, weird, weird yeah. stuff like that. Just who knows? All walking sticks and cabinet full of stickers oh, on the man. outside. Yeah, crazy stuff. But um, I found this piece of paper, and it was from a seminar that I did for youth workers in the year 2010, and I completely forgot I did this seminar. And what I did in the seminar was led everyone through an exercise to look back 10 years to the year 2000, and then to look ahead 10 years to the year 2020. Yeah, in the year 2000, that that was a memorable year for me because I graduated high school. So thank you for bringing back some of these memories uh, when you 
asked the question in that seminar, what did youth ministry and culture look like in 2000? So it's an easy thing to look back and go, oh, student life was this and church life was this. And so we're going to kind of walk through this this side of the piece of paper that has the 2000 on it in regards to what the year 2000 was all about. And some who are in youth ministry leading students now may have only been a few years old, yeah. if any. Yeah, if any, yeah. You know, yeah. and so 2000 may be a foreign time frame for you. Yeah, and you got to keep in mind, too, this was before September 11, 2001, which yep. is obviously a significant date in our nation's history. And what I did was I, I broke it up into two parts. What was student life like and what was church life like and culture? And then within those, like within student life, talked about how students were socially, technologically, physically, emotionally, and relationally in 2000. And then in church life, it was programmatically, ethnically, technologically, and biblically. So I will be your quote-unquote fact checker uh, on this year when you have made some of these. Oh, yeah. I will I will verify or or deny. I'll give you right. my as stamp a high of, school graduate yeah, in two thousand. Yeah, I yeah. can I can probably verify that this would be true or not. You know, because you're coming from a youth pastor perspective, right, looking right. ten years back. I'm looking at it as a senior in high school. Yep, and uh, I can. I can look at this and, and go, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, good point. All right, I'm with you. So the first thing in the section of student life you have socially, what was the year 2000 like socially? Well, well some of the notes I had were that was when, and again, I'm, I'm looking at this in 2010. So I was looking back 10 years, and I, one of the things that came to mind was students hung out together more than they did in 2010, in my observation. Um, TV was a lot more important in student life. TV was big. It was pre 9 11. One of the things I remember was boy bands were huge in 2000. So, like In Sync, 98 Degrees, um, Backstreet Boys, that was the vibe. Britney Spears was big. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's one of the things I remember. Am I, am I on there? Yeah, you are actually pretty on. I would say. In my memory, I had a large group of friends that we would hang out with very often. And this was, it was an unusual group of friends in a sense that I had subgroups mm-hmm. in that, that friend group that I would hang out with even more frequently. But this larger group of friends, we would get together at somebody's house and sing karaoke at somebody's oh, yeah. house or, you know, just hang out. And I may not be close friends with somebody else in that group. But when we came together, we were all friends. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. You know, half of them went to uh, on spring break trips together. Um, Yeah. Boy bands were big in sync. I remember we would do a rendition of uh, bye, bye, bye for like senior mock performances. Yeah. Britney Spears was big. Um, All those big, bigger style groups. And of course, yeah, TV was big. I mean, it was, it was kind of the the uh, infant stage of internet, so that wasn't a, a big thing, but TV was, was big. Yeah. The next section in that is technologically. So technologically, I, in this, yeah, you kind of segued there with what you mentioned about. It was the infant stage of the internet, so late 90, mid to late 90s was when the internet was going. So 
we're talking about dial-up internet, which some of you guys don't even know what that is, but students, uh, uh, most students did not have phones in the year 2000. So phones were still an adult thing. It was, you know, obviously no smartphones. These are just, you're using them to make calls at that time only. So what that meant was technologically, as a person working with students, you had to connect with your students through the parents. So you'd call home and you'd, you know, whoever might answer. But if you're making calls, that was the way to connect. You either went to them in person or, you know, you, you called them on the phone, dial up internet. So imagine, you know, no texting, which texting's here, but it's kind of come and gone in, today in terms of how students communicate mainly through apps and social media networks. But Napster was big. Google was just beginning. I remember even websites like Ask jeeves.com and mm, yahoo yep. were way bigger yep. aol was big so technologically uh that's i think what made the connection with more social hanging out was was the technologically students weren't things weren't developed yet and so that wasn't a connecting point and so physical social gatherings were bigger so that that's what i remember about technology yeah it's pretty spot on where uh, I didn't have a phone until 2003. I was a senior in college. So the beginning of my senior year, I got a phone, a, a cell phone. But otherwise, I didn't have a phone. Anybody who called the house and was asking for me had to go through my mom or something who answered the phone typically. You had dial-up internet. I remember having AOL and having to put in the password and wait for that. It's a very distinct sound. So if you know yeah. what that dial-up sound was. Maybe you can put it in right here. See, so now that's an example of what you would hear when you dialed the internet to connect. And yeah, there was no texting, but there was instant messenger. So you had your screen name and that allowed you to interact with all sorts of people, but you had to be connected to the internet. You had to be sitting at a computer and you would talk for hours with different people and have multiple conversations up at a time. Yeah, that's right. Chat rooms. Were Chat big. rooms were big. Um, I agree. Napster was big. I remember uh, my freshman year. So that was still the year 2000 freshman year of college uh, making my playlist through Napster. And I, I remember having that like uh, tension where it's like, is this stealing? Yeah. But this is free and it's offered. It's so easy. And I just remember going. I so I didn't have a large playlist, but I do remember starting to download uh, songs through Napster and onto my laptop. And were like burning CDs yep, like burning, nobody's yep, business. Yep. Google, I don't remember Google as much as Yahoo. So you kind of have a question mark next to Google, but I, Google wasn't, in that time frame, wasn't Yeah, on the relevant. radar, yeah. yeah. So I remember Napster started by a college student, Sean Fanning, and that created this whole... Actually, that's what really pushed iTunes. I mean, iTunes was a response to everybody getting music for free. Everybody was pirating music back in 2000. Oh, yeah. It was like, like I said, it was attention in my own soul of this is all offered for free, but you don't want to take it for free. And and there was lawsuits and there was there was things happening that this should not be happening 
and yet it kind of forced Apple to to come up with a better system. Yeah. The next section is physically. Yes. Student life physically. So we, I was just having youth leaders to go, okay, let's go back 10 years. I remember, obviously dress changes and is different. I remember like a lot of skimpy dress back in 2000 from when I remember. Um, and what I put as a, as a observation is that students were generally more physically in shape in 2000 than they were in 2010. I was seeing that trend where students were just less physically healthy in the last 10 years, and therefore there was a lot less health issues. I mean, one of the things on trips, we never had to think about allergies or in youth, you know, for youth gatherings, we just, you know, it was kind of everybody was, for the most part, I mean, it was very fringe with, with issues that way. But I do remember for me, I remember that was the beginning of my awareness and what I saw in a trend of eating disorders in students Mainly more girls, it hit both, but I, I began to see that in 2000. I don't have a whole lot of memories of like thinking, oh, there's more skin in girls' address. Um, mainly probably because I'm, I was in that period of time. So when you are in the middle of it, it's hard to kind of make a comparison reference to is there more skin or not and, and stuff like that. And I don't know if I even cared. Like, I'm sure I cared, but... Did it bother me? I don't know. More memories are triggering as you're talking, Jason, because I remember we started NTS camp in 2000, and the first few years we had to we had to have a lot of things in place in terms of dress code because of the way students were dressing, particularly girls, even guys though too. Like, and I remember a lot of it really was the influence of Britney Spears on fashion, like a lot of stomach showing like yep. short yep. tops like all that stuff was going on but then. being immersed in it it wasn't something that yeah you didn't, it was it just natural yeah, yeah it was natural yeah. i would say i don't know necessarily about uh, the health issues i know there wasn't uh, the prevalence of allergies as, as they are today yeah. um i remember my freshman year of college still 2000 being accused of having an eating disorder oh. because i was so skinny um they thought i was anorexic like I, I remember people in the dorm would put eating disorder oh, hotlines, wow. posters or flyers on my door as a way of like saying, Hey, I think you need this. I was secure in my body at the time, but, uh, I do remember those episodes where I was very skinny, uh, still pretty skinny. Well, dude, you have not changed. You have clothes I changed. you can wear from college and high school yeah, still. Yeah. It's so, ridiculous. Uh, but I, I do know that that was something that necessarily wasn't a uh, big topic, but it was talked about. Yep. The next section was emotionally. Yeah, emotionally. I was looking back again from 2010 to 2000, a lot less students on meds. Remember, I remember in 2010... Uh, and one of the ways I became aware of this was it was it was right around probably the late, uh, you know, late 2000s into 2010, becoming aware of more and more students on meds because I remember my eyes being open to it because we went to on a trip. We went to camp and we had to turn in all of our meds to nurses and like they're just being cases of all these prescriptions that students were on. So. A lot less meds in 2000 and a lot less depression. Depression was, I don't remember in 2000 as a youth worker 
that being a big topic that students dealt with. I'm sure it existed for sure, but it definitely wasn't something that we talked about. And I really think a lot less students dealt with depression in 2000. And I think overall, emotionally, students in general felt safer in 2000 than I remember them feeling in 2010. I would agree. I don't have any memory of dealing with it. Uh, I don't have any memory of my friends talking about it. It wasn't a topic. So this was something that was very uh, small in in the cases that I even knew about. Life then, I guess, would it did feel safer. One of the things to do was meet up randomly with people that you met online. You think back 20 years and nowadays you think about doing that and it's like are you crazy you know as a high school student you'd meet somebody online and be like hey you know you seem like a cool person let's hang out somewhere and usually it's in a group of friends anyway you wouldn't go by yourself but that that nowadays just seems so unsafe yeah yeah the last one we got into was relationally so what, what was going on relationally with students in 2000? Some of the things I, I wrote down was like um, the issue of homosexuality, things like sexuality in general. Of course, then when you talked about anything non-traditional in sexuality, pretty much the only thing that existed was homosexuality in that issue, same-sex attraction. And that was a, a very super fringe issue with students. I mean, it it just didn't really come up. It was very uncommon in terms of students talking about if they did or if they struggle with it, it was very uh, a not publicly discussed or talked about issue. Uh, there was a lot more consensus. Even, um, you know, back then, it was political suicide in 2000 if you endorsed same-sex relationships and marriage. I mean, on both sides of the aisle there, for sure. In terms of uh, one of the other things relationally was students how they communicate each other. You mentioned earlier, Jason, they had um, instant messenger, but written communication was big. A lot of still students like writing notes to each other, passing notes at school um, because texting wasn't a thing. So that's how students communicated, which is really nostalgic and kind of cool to think about. But that's pretty much a thing of the past, I think, with students. And um, so a lot more written communication, literally like on paper written communication. And then social networks, which wasn't even really a term then, but those were in person, I mean, getting together. So that's how students were relationally. Yeah, I would say this is a lot of spot on where I think I only knew one person that was struggling with homosexuality. And, you know, he would say that he was gay and then past graduation, he reverted back to being straight. And, but otherwise, I didn't know any homosexual relationships in high school in this time. Yeah, and written communication was big throughout high school. It was when you received a note, it was like, oh man, this is this is exciting, you know, and and you, that's how you communicated when you were passing people in the hallways, uh, or that's how I would receive notes from uh, various friends. It was more friends that were girls or my girlfriend at the time or whatever in that year. Uh, guys, we didn't really share notes. Yeah, as that well. wasn't, it wasn't thing. a thing. But that. dude, getting a note from a girl, that was a big deal. Yeah, so it it was like you could be a completely plutonic friend with a girl and get a note from her and it still 
oh, just as exciting. Cool, you yeah, know? super cool. Um, and so, yeah, that's how we kind of communicated. Yeah, in school, as you are in different classes and you're passing, you have all of like a few minutes to get from one class to the next. Yeah, and so, yeah, I remember that totally. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit uh, with student life to church life, you want to run through these real quickly and. Yeah. So then I just made some observations about what youth ministry in terms of church ministry and culture was like in 2000. So again, this is looking back 10 years from 2010 to 2009. I broke it down to four categories, programmatically, ethnically, technologically, and biblically. So programmatically, what I remember from from 2010, about the year 2000, was that it was more of a blend of entertainment type, what I would call entertainment type ministry, as well as serious ministry. So I think youth ministry was generally like a lot more fun. There was fun things that people were doing. There were programmatic elements like things like top 10 lists, which was a huge thing on the late uh, show with David Letterman, uh, crazy weird videos, which I know are still happening, but just a lot more of that where I feel like it was way easier to entertain quote unquote students when they were there in youth group. Yeah. Um, because you're not competing against YouTube yeah. or Netflix and yeah. all of the, the plethora of, of entertainment channels. Yep. So you could be just, yeah, more of that purpose driven was really coming onto the scene in the year 2000. So the purpose driven model, Purpose-driven youth ministry, which is a big, huge uh, influence then by Doug Fields. So breaking your your ministries down into those five categories, if you're familiar with that philosophy. I, I would say 2000 was like maybe the pinnacle, maybe a little after that, of what I would call the rock star youth pastor. It was more of a Pied Piper approach to leadership in youth ministry where Churches wanted this big personality leader to be their youth pastor, and all the students would just be drawn to this person. And so it was more of a programmatically more of that. Let's get a popular personality in person with it, you know, that loves kids, and typically that person's super unorganized and uh, not administrative at all. But all the kids will flock to this leader. Yeah, and there would be a draw to that person. And that person would have a larger personality than than your normal um, person that you would find in the church. Yeah, necessarily. Yeah. yeah, I can I can see that. I also was participating in a church that was not entertainment driven. It was a small uh, youth group. That was after I left your youth group, uh, Jeff. When you came onto the scene when I was a, a sophomore, I decided mm. to walk away. Yeah, uh, my Good junior day. and senior year and and uh <laughs> so in the year 2000 i don't i don't know about this uh blend of entertainment and serious ministry because that's not my experience <laughs> <laughs> um and then i had in there ethnically i think i think speaking like as a caucasian guy that in 2000 especially in the, in in our world I'm talking about our as in like Caucasian there was less awareness of this idea of inclusivity you know that wasn't a thing in 2000 I don't think it was on the majority of churches like I would say I didn't know any churches that were talking about those issues in 2000 what's interesting is in my ministry experience that was 
in the late 90s, like 98, 99, and 2000 is when I kind of began that journey through the church I was on staff with. We were taking that journey, and uh, and that church is still in that journey, which is great. I think they were one of the pioneers for churches really thinking about what does it mean to represent our neighborhood that we're in, and because we were becoming a commuter church. And Jason, the high school that you graduated from, um, currently has 72 countries of origin in it. Back then, it was probably at least, I would guess, 40, maybe yeah, 50. Yeah, there was, there was a lot. I was going to say, my high school was very diverse already, and I had a lot of friends that were of different ethnicities and people of color. And, and so this wasn't something that was... I know it's like a topic to be inclusive and more diverse and make it a point. It wasn't, it didn't even cross my mind yeah. at that point. Cause it was just, I had friends that were different than me, but it wasn't like, Oh, I have to be intentional or anything like that. We just, I grew up in a, a, a high school that had a lot of diversity. Now, I remember being at a national gathering in Washington, D.C., and it was, it was when I say national, it wasn't huge. It was like a handful of leaders. It was kind of an invitational. There's probably 30, 40 of us maybe. But I remember African-American leaders, this was in 2010, 29 or 2010, saying about students at that point in 2010, like, our black students and students of color, they're not thinking as much about ethnicity as, like, these are adults talking as we did in my generation. So these would have been people, you know, 10, 15 years older. And I would say just, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I think students are thinking a lot more at a younger age about these issues, about race and ethnicity than they were even in 2010. But in 2000, I just don't think general student population was really thinking, talking about that and leadership for sure. We weren't talking. And about that it. may be what we, kind of have come to realize like there is when you are a white male you just may be blind to some of that stuff and so right. i could have also been blind to it yep. and not experience it but there wasn't this tension or racial tension or anything like that there wasn't what i would experience racist things uh where i as an observer if that makes sense i right. wasn't observing racist things in the locker room or in the hallways or or even online it just that's how we were operating just as a large diverse school and that, so you know there was i think more innocence unawareness for sure uh from from lots of different places there and i think the last thing i would say on the ethnically like where things were there i remember that was 2000 where i began as a youth pastor on this journey of how do we build a diverse youth group? We probably didn't even use that terminology back then. I don't know what right. we, what we said, but I remember being in different circles of youth pastors of all kinds in different settings and saying, you know, hey, I'm on this journey. And it was like talking with people is like I was like speaking in a different language. I remember for the first eight to ten years from 20 to the late 2000s there where I I rarely ran across anyone who understood what I was even talking about, much less going through that journey. So for me personally, as a ministry leader, I've been on that journey intentionally for about 20 years now. And But I remember in 2000, that was just not a thing. And I remember even in 2010, I brought it up 
at a national meeting of youth leaders and couldn't get anyone to talk about diversity in youth ministry. Now, it's obviously like very talked about in, in where we're at now. Next is technologically, you had uh, your go-to PowerPoint and projector. Yeah, man, being a having a projector in the year 2000 in youth ministry was a big deal. You, If your church had a projector for your students, that was a major, major deal back then. Versus an overhead projector. Yeah, which were still being used in 2000, yes. believe it or not. Like, remember the old transparencies of worship yep. music when you have even the chords sometimes written? Oh, on yeah, the, yeah. The guitar chords written. I on remember it. that. I remember, yeah, professors in college using overhead projectors. Yeah, so... Video projectors, yeah, I should have even distinguished, but yeah. when I say projectors now, everybody's assuming video. But video, if you had a video projector in your youth ministry, that was a big deal. Uh, I remember in the late 90s hearing one of my friends talk about PowerPoint, and I was like, what's that? Now, some of you are laughing because like PowerPoint's cheesy, but whatever. And I was like, now what's PowerPoint? And I remember him, is like, well, it's it slides on a screen. It's like, and he was, he couldn't even hardly explain. I remember that conversation. And he was trying to explain what PowerPoint was. And I was like, wow, that's mind blowing. And then back then, students that, um, when you were in scripture, it was paper Bibles. Yeah. That was the only option. So that was another thing. So leading to biblically, what was that like? Yeah. What I remember in 2000 was students were, um, what I wrote down was less engaged. They weren't super engaged in the Bible, which I don't think has changed um, between 2010 and maybe 2020. Oh, we're going to get to those predictions yeah, later. Sorry. And the other thing I, I observed then was like there was a more of a knowledge base that students had in general. They had an understanding, even like, you know, students that didn't go to church, there's just a, a, a more broader knowledge base of the Bible. I would probably, yeah, it's hard for me because I felt like I, my faith was, um, I was taking it very seriously in this year. I got baptized in 2000. Uh, I had a moment in my faith journey where Jesus was real to me. Um, and it really changed the trajectory of my life where faith became not just my parents, but it became who I was. And so biblically I was more engaged. I wanted to know more. I was searching I was, you know, fully engaged doing the whole reading, underlining, making notes, all that stuff that you do when you are engaged in the word. For my friends, I remember trying to start a, a Bible study and it was like all of two friends, you know, so that wasn't, it wasn't much even in my peer group of like wanting to be engaged in, in the Bible. So yeah, that, that seems pretty spot on. Well, in the next segment, we're going to look at, at your predictions for the year 2020 from the year 2010. So if you are still sticking with us, join us for the next segment. We have looked at the year 2000 in the last segment from the point of 
2010 in the time frame. Now from the point of 2010, we are looking at what you did and predicted for the year 2020, which when we were in the year, it's like, oh, wow, that's crazy. But thinking 10 years ahead, that's a long time. And that's what you did. You you asked the question, what will youth ministry and culture look like in the year 2020? And so now we're going to look at this side of the paper, the two-sided piece of paper, the year 2020, and still the same categories, the student life broken down into socially, technologically, physically, emotionally, and relationally, and church life broken down programmatically, ethnically, technologically, and biblically. And so this is not as filled out, but it is still a little fascinating of what you predicted from the year 2010. Yeah, and this may sound weird. I'm going to say this about myself, and we joke about it here and the staff and the talk to people, but I don't know if it's like a spiritual thing or whatever, but I feel like I have a sense of predicting the future, or I have a sense of like feeling where things are going and trending, and it's lots of different things like um, products, music, uh, culture, ministry, all those things. So like I always joke around with people. I remember, and I'm getting off on a rabbit trail, but like in the late nineties, I saw these two dudes at a, a festival, a local um, fair in the small town where I lived at that time. And there were two guys that started this business out of their garage. And they had these things I'd never seen before. They were ripstop uh, fabric hammocks. And I was like, man, that, that just blew my mind. And I went up and met these guys, talked to them, and they told me, yeah, we're just started. They traveled. It was their first summer, started the garage, and I bought one. And I remember thinking, these are going to, these are, these will be huge. Now, those, that was Eagle's Nest Outfitter hammocks, which if you've seen hammocks, like, you know, I'm talking about the ENO brand. Yep. It was these two guys. And I remember thinking, wow, that's crazy. And then it took, I don't know, about 10 years or something for I feel like to really pick up in the mainstream. But I would say it's definitely mainstream. I was one of the early adapters because my mom bought me one of those hammocks in high school. Nice. Because she found them at a place called Shipshawana. Oh, yeah. And she was, and you know me, I was a backpacker. I love the outdoors. And she bought me one of those Enos. And I still have it. Yeah. Uh, My kids will use it. And. Um, well, my kids broke mine when one of them took it to college about a year ago. I've had it for like over 20 years. Yeah. One of the originals. The first time that my kids used it, not in college, but a small child ripped the pouch off because, you know, they're sewn in. Yeah, so you don't right. lose the pouch. And the first time that they used it, Ooh. ripped it off. So That's rough. it was one of those like. Okay. All right. Oh, man. But things like that, like I remember buying a pair of Chacos back in the year 2000. Those are huge now. Um, Grew a beard, Jason, way before they were cool. Now beards are cool, but I'll have mine long after. Are they? Maybe by now they aren't. (laughs) I don't know, but um, they have been. Just stuff like that. Some of it's fun, goofy stuff, but but I feel like I do have a sense of where, where things are going. So I remember in 2000 going, okay, let's talk about, 10 years from now. And in 2000, even, it sounded weird to say 2020. Now mm-hmm. we're saying 2021, which sounds weird to even me. Even harder to say. But um, so student life and what I was saying in 2010, so here we go, was I believe there would be greater isolation, less friendships, uh, more loneliness, 
and I put class would would feel greater than race. I believe that class and race were going to be a lot more divisive in student life. And, you know, I think that was happening and trending, but what's crazy when I saw this paper was to think about what we went through in 2020, greater isolation, less friendships, more loneliness. Yeah, you did have an accelerated circumstance in the year 2020 where the year alone allowed a lot of these things to seem even more apparent that they were coming true. And so, yeah, when you talk about isolation, this year magnified that isolation with uh, just the loneliness and people being separated from their friend groups and all of that stuff. So that's why this one was like, man, yeah, of course this past year was crazy like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Talk about a little bit about the class being greater than race because that that you're saying like economically class was was going to be more of a focus than race. Oh, I remember just thinking back then that that the class of students, I thought race um I remember thinking race will be a, a deal, but I think the classes of people in terms of like mainly socioeconomic would divide people more than they than they, than racially they did. And I don't know. That that you could probably interpret that either way in terms of if that's true, but that's what I was thinking. Technologically, what was your prediction? Well, in 2010, keep in mind the iPhone came out in 2007. That was a great divide there for sure. And uh, if you think about it now, middle schoolers were born into the iPhone world because, you know, mm-hmm. being uh, where we are, a 14-year-old today, right now as we record this, would only know the iPhone smartphone uh, world that they grew up. I remember writing, your phone would become your identity in 2010. Now, in 2010... You had to be kind of a rich kid to have an iPhone or a smartphone, but iPhone was what everybody wanted from the beginning, right. and it still is right now. But phone would be identity. I wrote down uh, massive tech addiction. I wrote down less freedom technologically, which mm. is interesting with the turn of events we've seen, and that every student will have a tech-integrated school experience. Which, again, this past year, 2020, has accelerated that. I would say tech was integrated, but now when you think about Zoom and virtual school and how they are on screen the majority of their day, that has really magnified and and accelerated this prediction. Yeah, so I think phone being their identity is obviously I think that's true. become true. You know, even the debate between Android and and Apple and the what kind of phone you have and even the prevalence of of upgrading yeah you know apple comes out every year with a new one and are you able to upgrade or you still have the iphone 7 oh you know yeah you look you're looked down upon yeah and the other part of that identity is and i've done this over the years with students and i remember we did it um with a student national student group a few years ago, if you remember this, Jason, that we gathered together, but we said, Hey, can we just look through your phone? Yep. Like, will you allow us to just see what apps you have on there and how you use them? We asked them questions about how they use their phone. We did even some interviews that we may have used early on in our podcast, but 
Uh, tech addiction, I felt like, was going to be a, a pretty big thing, which you know has come come true today. I think that's very true, and not just the magnified, accelerated rate, but I think when you talk about um, the phone itself, it's not just a device to make calls and show that you have a lot of money or something, but it also causes them to be that much more addicted to a device. And we've done research on it. We've talked to Chris McKenna, who has done a lot of research on it. We've done episode after episode. And you, if you do the research, you find that the tech companies are designing their devices and software so that you can become addicted to their device. And so this is 10 years ago that you're predicting something that I see is very prevalent. And we may think, oh, it's no big deal since everybody has a phone and that's what culture does. But think about it at 2010, that was not what we were doing walking around with our faces and noses into phones and having to always check every time a notification comes through. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember when, um, a couple of my friends got iPhones, a couple of my coworkers in youth ministry. I was a uh, kind of a holdout for a while. I didn't get one for a while, but I remember they said to me, they said, man, it will change your life. And I said, what's the big thing? And they both said the same thing separately. They go, you're never alone. When you have a phone, you're never alone anymore. And I thought that was an interesting observation. So less freedom. Wow. we're Right now, as we're recording this, there's this massive purge happening on social media. Agendas from big tech, that's kind of a, a, you know, a buzz topic right now. They're happening. But I predicted in 2010 that there would be less technological freedom for students. I don't remember some of the specifics that I was talking about, but I would say that's definitely been the case where there's just there's um, less freedom of expression for all of us, but particularly for students. The next one is physically. So what I what I was seeing in 2010 for the year 2020 was that there'd be a greater disparity between healthy and unhealthy students. And that is um, in a physical sense, but but I think in every sense. I remember thinking that and just seeing where the trends were going and thinking about in 2000, students were generally just a lot more physically healthy than they were in 2010. And just seeing that continue, that trend continue, which I think um, became true. There, I think the disparity, there became like if you wanted to, be a healthy student it was something you thought about you talked about you had to be somewhat intentional and proactive which i think is true today i think there's students that are thinking about their health like i know like soda consumption is way down with students than it was in 2010 so i think things like that where students are i just felt like they're gonna have to be and will be more intentional and purposeful if they want to be physically healthy. There are some aspects of the health food drive of being more organic and uh, less GMOs or no GMOs, or you have the gluten-free stuff, and that kind of creates this disparity. Like if you participate in that food bucket, you know you come across as more healthy than if you don't, and even even physically though if we are addicted to technology whether it's the screen phone video games staying inside that's going to cause you to be less outside which outside there's a lot of health outside 
by being <laughs> active and running around and participating in sports or just some sort of physical activity and not necessarily going outside just to sit on your phone on a chair. Yeah, I also remember like when it came to things like student trips, even NTS camp, observing that in 2010 and now seeing it like the trend that I saw, the less and less students were uh, seemed to be um, wanting to be involved in physical games or physical activities. More students literally sitting around just watching, observing. That's one of the cool things I'm going to put in a little plug here for NTS camp is that the ability of Kyle Wood on our staff to create an outdoor physical environment that engages. We've figured out about between 98, 99% of our students that are able to be engaged and really be active and be excited about that, which I think is genius on Kyle's part, how he does that. He also engages those who may not be uh, physically into it, but mentally they can be engaged. And so there's a blend of, you're just getting them one way or the other. And when you do, there's more participation for sure. Uh, The last two are emotionally and relationally, and you don't have a lot written. So maybe kind of blend those two together in your prediction. Yeah, mostly I wrote down in my notes less stability. I felt like students would be less stable emotionally. So more easily upset, more easily, we use the word now, triggered, uh, where I felt like students would, um, in 2020, would be just less stable in able to handle themselves emotionally. And at that point, the term snowflake wasn't in existence. People didn't use that term, which... You know, I think it's thrown around in a pretty derogatory way, but um, I'll give you an example. When uh, I had a daughter in college and during the 2016 presidential election, and when that happened uh, and Trump was voted in as president, you know, there was an announcement made to all the students, listen, if this upsets you emotionally, you know, there's people and things to talk to, and I know that that was kind of a, a thing at that time, but... Safe spaces. Yeah, the safe space idea. So I I felt like that was coming. And then relationally, I just wrote down students would have less time to be relational. And I think um, what I felt like was going to happen between 2010 and 2020 is there would be less and less margin in students' lives. I saw the rise of sports leagues and travel leagues and uh, extracurricular activities. Students were just being bombarded with things. And it's interesting how all that almost kind of came. I, th- I really feel like that was growing and growing. And then it came to a crashing halt in 2020 where all of a sudden students now had all kinds of time. Lots of time. Uh, everything was wiped off the calendar. It was this what you would have referred to in the past, the great pause where things just were on hold and you were able to maybe not get together with somebody in person, but you had the time to connect with somebody that was maybe your friend or, or had a little bit more time to make that connection for sure. And even the emotional, yeah, you, you talk about, uh, triggers, you talk about how offended people get on anything. And it, now it it seems like regardless of what you say, somebody is going to come back and say that offends me. Um, and so that is a, an emotional instability in my mind when 
you are easily offended. Not saying it's wrong, not saying you should never get offended, but when anything and everything appears to be presented to you and go, does this offend you? No, it doesn't. All right, we're gonna work it around to make sure it doesn't offend anybody. That just, it, it doesn't uh, appeal to uh, an emotional stable person when if you you get offended very easily. This statement may have already offended you. I'm offended. Exactly. And so do you find yourself... Loathing you at this yeah. moment? Yes, yeah, okay. Jason, I Good. loathe you. Just kidding. Well, switching a gear one more time to the church life that you have predicted for the year 2020. Let's walk through that real quick. What I saw between 2010 and 2020 was that programmatically in ministry, ministries would be smaller in numbers. And what I what I saw was I saw the trend of students not being engaged in the attractional model of ministry. And I know um, what's really accelerated in the last five years is a less attractional model of ministry, particularly youth ministry, where youth ministries are experimenting or going away from the bigger gatherings and either going away totally and saying we're a completely small group model and like a home church kind of thing where students are meeting off campus of the church or blended where they're doing some attractional and some, um, you know, more uh, spread out. And so that, that was one thing I saw. And then I also predicted more combination, what I call combination youth ministries, meaning less specialization, more middle and high school combined because I, thought that the numbers would be smaller I therefore thought okay more ministries are going to go you might say backwards or just um, back in time to where um, more ministries would be junior high and high school combined just because of the synergy and the critical mass of having the numbers just being together I, I saw that happening I have seen this as well where it's more small group focused where you you kind of push the relationship of the small group leader pouring into the lives of students, regardless of size of group. It's like the smaller appears to be more effective in the relationship, the transformation in their faith. I'll just put a little teaser out here that I'm going to talk about where I think we're going to go with the attractional model of ministry going forward in our next discussion episode. But all right, programmatically. And then I talked about ethnically and what I felt like in 2010 leading into 2020 is that there's going to be a major shift coming. And that major shift would be not just with the percentage of the population, which we've been talking about in America for decades, but we, you know, all of a sudden there's going to be this shift in the future of this, what's the minority majority. But uh, talking about the shift that would happen where it was more of an awareness. Remember thinking in 2010, being on the journey of ethnic diversity in culture and ministry for 10 years at that point in 2010 and looking ahead going, I think everybody else uh, will end up being involved in this discussion because it's going to overtake us. And I think it definitely has where now, you know, it's a major awareness piece where before, I know in 2010, when you'd put out a print or video piece, no one really, uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but it just wasn't in most people's thought process like we need to have, we need to represent everyone mm -hmm. in our print 
and video pieces when it comes to, you know, how we're representing ourselves or our ministry. And now that's obviously a concern of pretty much everyone. Again, the year 2020, what happened was this racial inequality, racial injustice. And so you see this movement that I saw where churches were starting to really take it seriously and starting to have those conversations and starting to say, what are we doing as a church? And, and so that was almost a major shift because it's been brewing and it's been around, but I think in the year 2020, it just, it, it's definitely one of those markers in this year that it shifted from, it's no longer just on the fringe or, uh, we don't have to deal with it to no, we need to look at this and look at how we operate in this mindset. That's right. Technologically, you wrote in or out with integrating technology. I don't think that was much of a prediction because it's you've covered all bases. It's either in or out. Yeah, I remember. Remember, just that that my prediction there was going to be ministries would either go all in with technology or they would just not put it as a priority and there wouldn't be much in between. So I was thinking back in 2010 that technology was becoming more and more of a factor in ministry. In 2000, it wasn't that much of a factor. I feel like, you know, the communication was, you know, literally handwritten or, you know, sent that way. Like Pony Express? Yeah. Is that, are you talking Telegrams. About, you're talking 18, 10? Candy grams. Candy grams. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was either that or, you know, it was, um, you know, showing up in person and hearing about things. And I felt like ministries were dabbling into technology in 2010 and they would either go all in with things like text servicing and, you know, app development. I remember thinking, OK, some ministries are just going to go all in for that. And some are just going to be content to be like, you know, technology is not really something we're going to totally you know we're gonna light the room with candles yeah and so from there remember you know like our one of our our mission statement is you know developing the lives of students using theology community and technology those are three things that we kind of base things here on it never the same as and they're in that order theology most important community super important for all of us and technology we believe technology is is you if you don't you're going to get left behind and i think a lot of ministries what we saw in 2020 is they were desperately behind they were not ready they were scrambling some ministries were ready for what happened with covid in terms of being ready to communicate and some were just so far out of their league and they still are yeah a lot of churches were just going what do we do yeah into with a shutdown and no one can come in and and scrambling to try to set up technology buying cameras cameras buying streaming figuring out services. how to upload it and live stream and and others were like it wasn't even a blip on the radar yeah you know it was like hey we're just going to continue doing what we are doing but you stay home and we'll continue doing what we've always been doing yeah for sure definitely have seen that again 2020 has really accelerated a lot of these predictions and so the fact that you found this this year and versus last year uh really kind of helped your your case in all of these predictions yeah, it was I good mean. <laughs> and we got one more and that is biblically you know what what was going on in 2010 and what was i thinking about in 2020 and 
I wrote down some notes here. One is that I believe the Bible in 2020 would be more offensive to students and to culture. That things, you know, in Scripture would would really cause offense in people. And I think that's definitely been the case. I mean, the Bible, I think, is a more offensive thing. And then the other prediction I made, which is probably a no-brainer to most of us, is that I wrote down in 2020 there would be way less knowledge about the Bible for students. And so those are the things I was thinking about in 2010 going to 2020. Yeah, for sure. And again, this, I think with people getting offended more easily, the Bible itself is a point of attack. And you, you say something that is biblically based or traditional in the Christian faith, it, it rubs up against culture even more today. And, you know, you think about some of the points of culture with sexually or identity and gender, and you kind of lay that against the Bible and you, you see some definitely points of, of being offended. I remember saying 10 years ago to our uh, communicators in NTS camp about this particular issue of, of students' biblical perspectives, as, as I remember saying in and making sure that our communicators up on the platform like some practical ways to live out this in reality is don't make 10 or 12 biblical references in terms of you can maybe cite a verse or a truth but if you're going i remember saying use one direct text one primary text that you're going to speak from and fully develop that so people understand you know what what genre of writing was it? In other words, is it a gospel? Is it an epistle? Is it a historical book or whatever? That, as well as saying, don't reference a bunch of characters and assume that students know it. So, for example, don't stand up in front of students and go, now you remember when Moses did this, and you remember King David did this, and, you know, the Apostle Paul, and, like, a lot of times we'd rattle off that and just, and even maybe verbally or non-verbally, uh, assume, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know the story. But I, I just said, don't assume that students know anything. Pretend like you're standing up there and students have no clue and you have to totally bring them into context. And we've been doing that for over 10 years now at NTS. And I think it's something that we should take note of for those of us that are communicating with students that we should be thinking that. Yeah, way. it's the, the approach of allowing the scripture to support your point and so you're just searching for something, you know, a character, a uh, uh, truth or something that would go, oh, this is what I'm talking about. So I'm going to put this in and and it it can confuse people when you don't know the entire narrative of the Bible and and how it all connects and and the whole story. And so when you start jumping in and out of of references, it's like I'm lost and now you are ineffective altogether because I am not following you whatsoever. So we've, we've gone through this in length here, this piece of paper that I found, and I'm wondering as you're listening to this, what you think. Were we wrong? Were we right? Some of you that went through, went back to the year 2000, maybe you heard some of that for the first time and never thought. But I think in youth ministry, we need to be thinking not just about where we are and where we're going, but where we came from is really important. I hope that you got something out of that. And Jason, it was really great having your perspective as a high school graduate in the year 2000. In the year 2000. If you know that reference, you know. You know. Yeah, it was great. It was great to look back and and reminisce, but also look 
at this year of 2020 and and what it has done to youth ministry but it, it really just spurs us to look at the next 10 years which we will do in the next episode in regards to some predictions of the next 10 years for youth ministry the church culture and jeff is completely responsible for all those predictions i don't think i will be making any of those but apparently you are also going to predict the next 30 years so hold on to your hats and your cufflinks because we're going way into the future the thought factory podcast is brought to you by never the same whose vision is to see new generations transformed in christ to further the kingdom of god Learn more at neverthesame.org.